Welcome back, Inspired listeners, to part two of our Women Fight COVID series. Um, part one, as you know, was with our nurse friend from the East Coast. And part two, he, we have here today with uh, Nurse Dina from the West Coast to do a little compare and contrast on um, sort of what they're seeing in real life. And welcome, Dina. Oh, I'm sorry. Here with Samantha Fredelius. Yes, I am here, everyone. I am here. So Bonnie could not be with us today, but we do we do have uh, Nurse Dina with us. So thank you, Dina, for being here, first of all. Thanks for having me. And, um, you know, as we had discussed in part one, we all, you know, see what we see in the media and on TikTok videos and Instagram stories. And, um, you know, what we're really trying to get down to is what's what's really going on on the front line? What are you really seeing inside those four walls that um, maybe isn't being portrayed in the way it should be? to the public yeah um it's rough it's really rough i think at this point uh being about a year and a half into it a lot of us are really burned out um, myself included and um there are a few of us that are um you know looking at taking stress leave because it's been the job on a good day is a hard job. And with COVID, it takes it to a whole other level. Um, you know, I work in the intensive care unit. So the sickest of the sick patients come to us. And, um, you know, with COVID, uh, these patients, when they get so severely short of breath and they are requiring um, many, many liters of oxygen, um, and then require getting intubated, which means putting a tube down their throat and putting them on what we call life support or ventilator. Um, these patients, um, can be in our department for, uh, three to four weeks. Wow. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes, uh, they'll last maybe a week on um, like a non-invasive type of uh, breathing support where it's a mask and it just pressurizes oxygen to make it easier to take the breath in. Um, sometimes we can buy time using that, but if you know patients fatigue after a period of time, their body just can't take it, they get tired and we have to put them on a ventilator. Um, and if they don't die, um, they can be on life support for you know, two, three weeks. Um, you know, we have somebody who's in our department now who is unvaccinated um, in their early 40s, previously totally healthy, um, going on three weeks on the ventilator, and they're talking about putting in a tracheostomy, which is, you know, putting a hole in their neck and putting, hooking them up to a ventilator that way because it makes it easier to come off and on the ventilator when you're trying to get them weaned off of the machine. It's hard to hear these stories, especially when we hear from you how exhausted and worn out and, and PTSD and stressed everybody is in your positions. Uh, because as Samantha was noting earlier when we were chatting before we started recording that the human body really is not meant to be in this fight or flight state for a year and a half. Exactly. And it, it um, the challenging thing that that I feel as an outsider is that it you know this round two of these um, 
the spike in these hospitalizations from what we hear, and maybe you can let me know if this is right or not, but a very, very, very high majority of people in the hospital are unvaccinated. So it seems to me that this spike, this stress that you guys are now having to endure once again was, I don't know, pretty much preventable. Totally. Oh, totally. Um, you know, a year ago when we started on this journey, um, I think a lot of us uh, just being on the front lines, a lot of us didn't even know what we were facing. We were, it was the, the knowledge of this virus was in its infancy. We still hadn't totally understood it. Scientists were trying to figure it out. Um, and so it was scary to go to work. It was like, am I going to bring this shit home to my family and get my people infected? I would call my husband when I was around the corner and I would say, honey, COVID protocol. And I would go around the back and I would strip down into my underwear outside my slider back slider, and then go straight to the shower and wash off and put all my clothes in a bag and put it straight into the wash. Um, you know, as we started to learn more, I felt a little bit less nervous um, because we kind of learned that it didn't hang out on surfaces as much. It was more like you would get it just by breathing it in. Um, but uh, the just the, the fatigue of dealing with the, um, the, the stress of making sure that you are, um, just conscientious about your hygiene. Um, so you don't bring that stuff home, you know? Um, and, you know, early on, I think a lot of us too had compassion for these people. It was like, this was a terrible thing that was happening to people. Um, and a lot of our uh, early on, um, the demographic of patients that we were taking care of were predominantly Hispanic. And when you think about their, um, the socio-cultural uh, implications. It's these, these are people who tend to live in, you know, groups, family, um, you yeah, know, multi-generational housing. A lot of this was not part, this wasn't something they could avoid. Right. And a lot of them were just not taking it as seriously. There were, there were people who were thinking it wasn't going to be that bad. We had husband and wife, grandma, grandpa who died in our unit because they went to one of their uh, grandkids yeah. birthday parties. Um, you know, and so, and, and on top of that, just in terms of the fatigue of caring for these types of patients, um, it's a very labor intensive, um, job in terms of you have to put on all your PPE, you go into the room, you've got a, a closed door, you know, glass door in the ICU. Um, and if you forget something, it's like, oh my gosh, to have to degown and degerm and everything to come out to go get that thing uh, is, you know, you have to be very thoughtful, but inevitably it always happens because you get in there and sometimes you don't realize like, oh no, I needed that. Or maybe they shit the bed and you don't have enough supplies in your room or whatever it is. And then you're, you're having to like knock on the glass, trying to get attention of your coworkers. They're all busy. They're in their rooms. And especially when we had a lot of COVID, everybody's in their rooms and you don't have the people there to help you. Oh my God, it's just exhausting. And then, you know, if these people are needing, um, like interpreter services, you know, we're having to use, uh, like a Skype version of, um, 
communication for any type of convenience. Oh, it's that. And then just trying to, you know, allow families to communicate with their loved ones via a, um, you know, a virtual platform is very time consuming on top of all of the other stuff we have. And you're worrying about trying to save their lives. And now you're having to figure out how to have technology. I think too, and we had spoken uh, with our East Coast friend just about when a patient has to be moved or flipped over and it could take five people to do that, you know, it to, to flip take five people, right? To do that. Yes. And you're pulling resources from one area to another area. And you're just, you know, I think the, the thing that we're not talking about as a culture is what this is doing to our hospital workers, the people, the, the essential people that are taking care of us, yeah. you guys are drowning. Like you guys are not every single person that I know, or I hear from, or I talk to says the same thing across the board. And it's like, we are not meant to, like th- nobody's meant yeah. to deal with this. Um, exactly. And I think my question is, and also for our listeners is like, what can we do as women, you know, in the positions that we're in to do our little part just to help make your guys' lives easier. I mean, get our shots, wear our masks, but how can we also be better people and hold to help this, this pandemic? Right. You know, it's so hard because, you know, you have to try and lead by example, right? You have to try and be that role model. Um, You know, just being smart about your choices in terms of, I mean, we're all tired. Like we want to be able to like be with our friends and be with our family. It's been a very long time. A lot of people were isolated for many months. It affects people's mental health to be isolated. We're, you know, we're creatures that need to, we're social creatures. We need to be around people. That's like what makes us happy. Yeah. You know, um, but I think the masking, the hand washing, you know, really hammering it into your kids. Like right now we have a lot of kids who are unvaccinated and they're in school, which is where they should be. Um, but they are vectors, essentially. It, they can pass it to one another. Kids compliance with mask wearing, especially the really young ones, that's really tough. Um, I know that my sister, she's uh, her kids in a classroom with 30 other kids. That's like, I mean, how do you space them out six feet apart? It, it's rough. Um, especially and- when they're young. I mean, I've got an eight-year-old who's she's, they get it. And we've had a lot of, it was like, look, we're going to wear this yeah. or we're going to have to mom school. So choice is yours guys. And they're like putting four of them on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> no more mom school. Right. But I, I think there's, and I just get so angry too. When I hear, um, these parents that are, you know, advocating for non-mask wearing. And if it's like that <sighs> simple teeny tiny thing you guys could could help prevent someone coming into your hospital uh, you know space and taking up a bed you know that one teeny tiny thing is it worth bitching about and and being that person is it worth yeah. it now well let's just talk about that for a second so you know this is one of the things that it really pisses me off is that we are so tired and these patients are displacing other patients who also need care. Um, And, you know, let's say your mom has a stroke or your dad has a heart attack and they come into the ER and I'm sorry, we don't have any ICU beds because they're all full of COVID. And these people, like I mentioned, stay for two, three, four weeks 
they take up a hospital bed for a very long time. Um, so those patients who have other health emergencies aren't getting, you know, the care as timely, um, or they're not getting a hospital bed and they're having to look for other nearby facilities and neighboring areas. So it's super inconvenient for the families who now have to travel to, you know, a location that might be an hour or two from home if that's where they can find a bed to admit them to, um, or they don't find a bed at all. And then things get delayed. So they're not getting the interventions on time. They're not, you know, it's, it's really, it's going to cause our show. healthcare system to collapse. Really, This is a literal shit show. Yeah. One of the things, yeah. um, one of the things that our East Coast friend talked about, which I hadn't really thought about um, before she said this, and, and you know, we, we talk about the, the near-term effects to our healthcare workers, the stress, the PTSD, the, the you know, exhaustion, the drama, like it's hard. It um, one of the things that she had mentioned, and, and again, I hadn't thought about this, is the longer-term effects is that she said that she's seeing very well qualified, very good people in the medical industry that are leaving because of this. So not only will it have the impact short term, but on all of us, it's going to have this impact long term and in the care that we're able to get because the, the, the literal people are no longer doing that as a career. Are you seeing the same thing out West? Oh, I, I'm the poster child. Um, I've been doing this for uh, just over 21 years. Um, and all my experience has been in the intensive care unit. So I'm, I'm an expert in my craft and I can take any patient who rolls through the door. And, um, you know, I've been a leader in my hospital and I've taken on a lot of projects. I've run programs in my department and, um, they're going to lose me. I'm, I'm stressed out. Um, I'm seeking counseling. I'm tired, um, you know, it's waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to fall back asleep because I've got just horrible thoughts and um, images in my head, the stress, just like when you're running on empty, any little thing that happens in your life puts you over, you, you have nothing left, you have nothing left to give. Um, and I'm, I'm actually going back to school because I need to get out. I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, my husband and I have talked about um, me just totally quitting. And um, so I can just focus on school and not have to go back to that environment because it's, I have another colleague of mine who um, probably has 15 years of experience and she is one of our most excellent people. And, um, you know, she's on stress leave right now and it's, it's terrible. I think we're going to really lose a lot of our talent and sure they can bring in some young nurses, um, to replace us. And I think from a hospital perspective, maybe that to them, it's like a warm body, but you are not going to have the people who are the ones who show the younger ones the ropes and teach them some of the things that you don't learn in school. We you know? all benefit from that 21 years of experience. And now we're all going to suffer because it's not, it won't be there when we need it. 
Exactly. And not to mention just the numbers. I mean, people are leaving. And so it leaves those that do stick it out behind in a very short staffed situation. Um, and that in and of itself creates its own, you know, crises when you're also overwhelmed, the hospitals are overwhelmed, the ERs are overwhelmed. Um, you know, I had one ER nurse I spoke to recently and she described the ER as Armageddon down there. She goes, it's Armageddon down there. It's you just like, and you already had it. You already had that a year, you know, we thought we, we thought we were past it. And here we go again. And I think, um, you know, our, our whole focus point again, with this, this message that we're trying to get out is not to relay the things that we keep hearing, but again, to share the personal experiences of the women that are behind the scenes and, you know, and men too. I mean, let's be honest, anyone that's puts on those scrubs and is behind, you know, those curtains treating patients. I mean, my God, I mean, we need as a society to have a little bit more sympathy and empathy for the roles that you guys are doing and taking care of us. And it's our job to make your job easier, not harder. And I think that is something that's, you know, what we want to blast out there. Yeah. And, you know, as women, since, you know, we're talking about this being, you know, and, and let's be honest, like the profession is predominantly women dominated. Nursing is predominantly women. Um, You know, many of us are also mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, Those of us that have, that are in middle-aged have aging parents and we're juggling a lot. So it's, you cannot continually give, give, give to your profession that doesn't give back to you. And then having to give to your children who we all know are little leeches. They just suck the life out of us. They suck everything out of us and And, then more. (laughs) And then, you know, like for me, I have two parents who are uh, struggling with their own health right now. And that's taking a lot out of me outside of work. So my days off are not being replenished. And um, that all takes a toll. I mean, everybody has their own thing that they are dealing with, their struggle or their challenges or whatever, but it just is, it, it's just too hard for too long. And this time it's 100% preventable. People need to get out there and do their part. It's not about you. I just feel like our community has become so incredibly um, egocentric and, worrying about self and their rights. It's like, you know, we follow rules for a reason. You know, there's a red stoplight there for a reason and you can abide by that, you know? And then these people who are claiming that, you know, well, they don't know what's in the vaccine. Well, what kind of food are you putting in your body? You don't know what that shit is either. There's so many arguments that people have. When they come in and they have COVID and they're like, yes, I'll take the vaccine now. Sorry, it's too late but I'll take your emergency use authorization treatment that you're offering me right now. So why would it the vaccine? It's funny, the the hospitals are filled with sick and dying people with COVID, but last time I checked, and correct me if I'm wrong, they are not filled with people sick and dying from the vaccine, correct? Exactly, that's exactly right. Um, Okay, million dollar question, nope, inflation. Billion dollar question, (laughs) How, how do we get out of this? Like, are we going to, like, I don't want to be here in 2022. So how do, how does this end? You know, 
That is a question I don't know that anybody can answer. Um, I think that some things that will maybe make an impact are um, like I had a friend reach out to me and he is unvaccinated. He got COVID last year. Um, and he and I have had debates uh, about it. Um, and I've always tried to approach it from not super preachy, but just, you know, information and education. And please come to me with your concerns. How can I help you understand this better? Um, but he's a huge fan of um, the Raiders. And apparently the Raiders just said, if you wanna come to our games, you have to show proof of vaccination. And so that might be the thing that will get people to get vaccinated is their inability to participate yeah. as one of the societal members to go do normal things. You wanna go out and sit in a restaurant and eat? Well, this restaurant isn't gonna allow you to unless you show proof of vaccination. That will have a trickle down effect, I think, over yeah. time. It's not going to fix everybody, um, but it will maybe um, help get some additional people vaccinated. And the sad thing about the fact that this is a rapidly dividing, you know, virus is that it's going to continue to perpetuate, right? The more times it spreads and the, you know, and with this being so contagious, the new Delta variant being so contagious, it's spreading so fast. It has more and more opportunities to mutate. And so it's really hard to chase that down. It's like, are we going to be able to develop a vaccine in enough time and get enough people vaccinated with the new version that it's not gonna continue to just propagate in our environment. Cause otherwise we're, it's gonna be, you know, years. I mean, I think to be fair than the- um, to Live with, you know? I think, I think to be fair, the new version should be named, you know, United American and Southwest, just to be fair <laughs> from a corporate standpoint. Jet to blue. little Delta Airlines. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dina, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for giving us yet another perspective, showing us the West Coast and the East Coast are not that different in where we're at in what we're dealing with. Um, thank you to you and your team for getting out there every day and fighting the fight and keeping us healthy and, you know, doing your part. Um, I know Stacy and myself and Jen, who's not here, we all, you know, have so much respect for just women in your field and everything you guys are doing is just amazing. Um, I hope this conversation has left someone inspired. I hope it allows you to get out there and inspire someone else. And thank you again so much, Nurse Dina. Thank you.